Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. He is risen. You got it. So I got a text this morning of He is risen is to our CLC in another language. He is risen. George, grab that mic right there. Would you give us a Lebanese greeting or a Greek greeting? So you might think George is going to give a greeting in Greek because he's a New Testament scholar. He is that, uh, but that's not why. So tell us why. Where did this come from? So I grew up in Lebanon, and uh, every Easter we visited my grandmother. My mother, grandmother was from a Greek descent, and she would always greet us with Christ is risen, and we were supposed to answer, he is risen indeed. So I'm going to teach you this so you can speak in tongue like the rest of us uh, <laughs> do. And uh, the word Christ, the K is not a K in English, it's a K in English. So I don't expect you to be able to do it, uh, but try as best you can. It's a guttural thing that comes from way back there. So it's Christos Anesti, and and then you you would answer Alithinos Anesti. Alithinos Anesti, and the 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 thi is with your tongue out. Alithinos Anesti. So let's try that again. I'm going to greet you with Christ is risen. And then alithinos anesti means in truth, in real truth. It's the word like verily, verily, not quite the same word, but, but that's what it means. Really, really, he is risen indeed. All right? So let me say it again. Alithinos anesti. Say it again. All right, here we go. Christos anesti. Alithinos Anesti. There you go. Now you too are a Greek scholar. I hope this week has brought encouragement and enrichment to you. Uh, maybe some years at Easter, I didn't even barely know it was Easter till Easter morning. I don't know if anybody's ever been there, if you're there this week. For about 20 years, um, I led a large 10K road race. We talked about it this morning, maybe think about it, Dalton. We call it Easter Sun Run in uh, Wichita. And I was the director, so I was always so busy because we would have six, 7,000 people gather in the park on the day before Easter. Jeff and Christine have been there many times. And so I never thought about Easter until Easter morning, because I was so occupied. Um, one of the reasons I stepped away from that was to stop being so preoccupied with so many things. And uh, it's part of the reason I moved here, was to stop being so preoccupied with so many things, other than the main thing. And, um, but I hope this year has been enriching to you. I'd like you to give one or two of the opportunity. For, for me, uh, one thing that's been really landed with me this year is I've thought about Passion Week and the things that Jesus was doing and having to deal with. Was I've never really given that much attention to the interrogation on Good Friday, 
before Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate, and uh, really landed with me this year in the, the relational pain that he endured on our part. I think I've always just kind of sprinted through that to get to the cross part of the meaning, which is, of course, the central part. Uh, but I wonder if anyone else, I won't, I'm not going to impact that. It's just been really meaningful for me to try to imagine myself standing there with Jesus. Well, what would I do there? You know, when he got slapped in the face and insulted. Um, would I be with Peter out warming by the fire? Or would I be inside with him? Those kinds of thoughts have occupied my mind this week. What about you? Anybody? Raise your hand if you want the mic. I'll bring it to you. One or two of you. Don't scratch your nose right now. But you really mean it. George. Yeah, please. Only because I I did the same thing this year as well. Um, uh, When Pilate hands Jesus to the soldiers to be flogged, they do so much more so much more to him than was really proper to do. They slap him, they mock him, they spit on him, uh, they beat him with a rod, and then they flog him. And all of that is gratuitous. Like that violence didn't need to be committed that way. It's just an amazing realization that the violence we can commit just because we have, we think we have the power to do it as mm. human beings. And it's happening all over the world. It's happening in our neighborhoods, in our cities. And Christ is willing to bear that. Thank you, George. Wow. So good. One more. All right, Dalton. We'll let you have it. You can just set it on the front row when you're there. Okay, cool. Um, so yesterday we were driving home from Wichita, and my wife Hannah puts on a podcast. It was a Tim Mackey podcast. And it was really, um, I feel like I've kind of been in that zone, like Jim was mentioning, where it's like I haven't really been, I haven't really slowed down to engage with Passion Week. I haven't, like, I don't know, it kind of feels like, okay, well, it's Easter now and yeah. this morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the thing that really stuck out to me from that podcast was just talking about um, how, you know, the hope of the resurrection, it's, you know, it is something that we have passed down to us. We have the women who are the witnesses, and they pass it to the disciples and who, you know, pass it on to the church. And all, all the people who saw him, there's like 500 people that Jesus appeared to after he was resurrected and before he ascended. And that has trickled down all the way through history. And, you know, like, we're not just, like, based on, like, okay, we, we have this, like, one book that we don't know who wrote it or anything like that. It's, like, there's, like, a lot of eyewitness testimony to this. And so as humans, like, we have to engage with that. You know, Jesus of Nazareth is, like, a real person from history. And he was really killed. And we all saw, and a bunch of people saw it. And then he was really alive and not dead anymore. And a lot of people saw that. Like, we have to engage with that. Um, but the, and that's, you know, that's just general, like the gospel, but I think, you know, we talk so much, we talk a lot about the, you know, Jesus' death and his atoning, 
his atonement for our sins, you know, taking away the condemnation from that. But then, you know, like, what does the, what does the resurrection do? It's almost like, it's almost in some ways like he didn't need to, to do anything, but he did to give us hope and to give us, like, a reason to believe, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it just shows that the world is not the way that we necessarily think it is. Like, people, people don't usually do that. People don't usually die and stay dead for a few days and then come back. And I don't know. It's just like, it, it was really, I'm not articulating it very well. I'm rambling a little bit, so sorry. But good um, to realize that the world is um, God's world that he has made, that he does what he wants with, um, and it's the, the world that Jesus has been preaching the whole time of this is the kingdom of God. It is here and life is available and hope can be, or hope is here. We don't have to live in the world of, we have to live in the world, but like, <laughs> sorry, like the world that we see is sad and broken and you look anywhere and there's all this hurt and pain and sorrow and Jesus steps into the middle of it and says, that's not the way things have to be, and that's not the way things are going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that was really, really encouraging, the hope of the resurrection. And, yeah, the hope that Jesus is alive and that he is who he says he is. And yeah. all of the sad things of history will come untrue someday. So, Thank you so much, Dalton. Well said. You may have felt like you were rambling for a minute, but I think that that's a great lead into the word that the Lord is giving us this morning. So thank you for that. Our, if you're a guest, I want to, as best as I know how, clearly articulate what we're trying to be about as a community. Uh, Eric, unplanned, but if you'd flash just, or Daniel, the, our vision statement up there. Uh, it is this, to know and to follow Christ. To live and lead in his likeness to the ends of the earth. I'm not going to unpack that this morning, but we believe there's great density in those themes. We want to be a people who are knowing and following Christ as Dalton came. He didn't just come to get us a ticket, as Dalton said. Well, my word's not his, punched for heaven, but, but the kingdom is here, and it is here now, and we are learning to live in that kingdom of God, beginning now, because he wants something more from us, something different, fundamentally different in his likeness to the ends of the earth as redeemed people. So let's get into it this morning. August 10th, 1979, famed actor, filmmaker, and comedian Woody Allen uh, sent an article that posted in the New York Times that day in August 1979. I don't know what some of you were doing in 1979. Uh, some of you weren't here yet. Many of you weren't here yet. Uh, but he, he entitled this article, My Speech to the Graduates. It was like a, if he could speak to a graduation ceremony, maybe he wasn't getting invited and he was ticked off about that. I don't know. But he wrote a speech to a theoretical group of graduates. And in the speech, he wrote this. More than any time in history... Mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other to total distinction. 
extinction, excuse me. Interesting choice. I speak not with any sense of futility, but with a panicky conviction of the absolute meaninglessness of existence, which could easily be misinterpreted as pessimism. No kidding. It's sad, is it not? That one's thinking, you know, it's said we live out of our paradigms. If we, if we believe that what, what it means to be a Christian is just pray a prayer so one day, someday I can go to heaven and get, kind of get a barcode on my arm and get that scanned, then that's a paradigm that we're going to live out of. We're going to think, well, what I do here and now is not that important. God's not really engaged with my life here. I just made a, I signed a contract with him for later. But if we believe that God came in Jesus as fully God and fully man and wants us to engage that life that he came to give, then that's a different paradigm, fundamentally different paradigm. It's interesting that Woody Allen got shaped in this paradigm. You got two choices. One's utterly hopeless. One's extinction. Which one do you want? And then he has the nerve to say, this could be easily misinterpreted as pessimism. Nearly 3,000 years earlier, a Hebrew king penned these words. Interesting, I had Hebrew, interesting because Woody Allen's Jewish. He probably had heard these words before. This is what he wrote. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That was his reflection inspired by God's spirit. God has set eternity in your hearts. There's something in there as an image bearer made in the image of God, an imager of God. There's something deep in there that's forever. He has set eternity in the hearts of men, and that's expressed in this, you know it, this longing we have, each of us, for something more. It's a striking contrast of perspectives. One offers a choice between hopelessness and extinction. The other says God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Which perspective do you hope to be true? Which paradigm do you want to build your life on? In the first century, between Woody Allen and Solomon, going back, a Galilean fisherman whose life, honestly, was traumatized. Um, I, I did the math, and this is probably off a little bit, but 1993 Good Fridays ago. But his life was forever changed two days later. He penned these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In, and these are the words we're going to break down for just a few minutes this morning. In his great mercy, he has given us, say it, new birth, to a, say it, through the what? Of Jesus Christ from the dead. Such optimistic, hope-filled language. Look, look at the words. From a simple, uneducated man, famously renamed by Jesus, Peter. 
rock. Peter was a man from another time and place than us. But in many ways, he's very much like us, I think. Sometimes we see Peter at his best, strong and noble. Risking all he has, leaving behind all he had to follow Jesus. Sometimes we see Peter weak and cowardly, shrinking and shriveled, warming himself by the fire. Sometimes we see Peter assertive, uncompromising. Lord, I will go with you to the death. When the other 11 weren't saying anything. Sometimes Peter's layered, conflicted, and insecure. He can't even stand up to a servant girl. He's all human with the aspiration, hopes, dreams, and vulnerabilities just like you, just like me. When he, when he was at his best, he could so shine. His core convictions would come out of his words. That's what we see here in this text. And his great mercy, we've received new birth to a living hope through the resurrection. These words, on the one hand, they, they have a bit of a sobering effect on me. And that first phrase, in his great mercy, that reminds me of my vulnerabilities and my insecurities. It reminds me of my need for mercy. We'll say it. More about that in a minute. But his words also stir wonder in me to a new birth. I mean, that's just an odd phrase. To a new birth. It invites us to consider that possibility. New birth? That can't be real, can it? And Peter's words have the audacity to awaken our longing for something that we want desperately but are not sure we have, the gumption to risk it, hope, to hope in the face of adversity. These words, they implore us to look back because Jesus says through the resurrection, or Peter wrote, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to this historical event that forever changed, not just Peter, but the universe. It gave the universe permission to begin groaning, as Paul writes in Romans. It's groaning now with anticipation. Why? Because there's hope for the more that men and women, boys and girls, can articulate and do articulate in so, so many ways. Peter's words invite us to look forward and risk hope. So that's the question for us today. Will you risk hope? Peter writes, praise be to the God for his great mercy. Let's think about mercy together just for a moment. I'll start with a question. How well acquainted are you with mercy? What, what role does it play in your life? Have you experienced mercy? I wonder if Woody Allen had or has. What is mercy? Mercy is a 
withholding of deserved negative consequences or, or a punishment. Mercy describes a decision to not give judgment where judgment is due. Mercy says, yes, you've got it coming to you. Or yes, they have it coming to them. Mercy's like li lifting the page on the, you know, the little drawing you had when you were a kid where you scribbled on it with that little plastic pen and then you lift the page up and whatever you wrote's gone. You know, or the Etch-a-Sketch, you know, where you make your creation and then you shake it and it's gone. Mercy is lifting the sheet and proclaiming it is forgotten, it is forgiven. Mercy is a treasure because there are times in your life, in my life, in our life, even together, where mercy is our only way forward. Mercy is effectual when nothing else will do. When no payment, no restitution we can make is enough. When we can't be good enough. It's essential when the harm we've created is beyond repair. Mercy says what you did is now erased. Mercy says you've been forgiven, you are clean, you are off the hook. Mercy says we can go forward again. And I release you from your guilt. Peter, he knew something about mercy. Peter was well acquainted with it. You know, let's think for a minute about Peter. I, I think the passion story, Judas Iscariot is the one that gets all, he's the villain, right? He, get, he gets the rap for the whole thing. He betrays Jesus. He's the terrible monster of the Passion Week. He sells out his loyalty to Jesus for pieces of silver. He deserves the reputation he has. But there are others who failed that week. Others with plenty of guilt. Peter, for one. I'm not sure he fared that much better than Judas, to be honest with you. Peter, like Judas, was a man who'd been selected, who'd been seen, who'd been called by Jesus. Peter had made a radical decision to follow Jesus. He had left his vocation behind and followed. He had been invested in by Jesus. Three years. He'd been trained by Jesus. He'd been equipped. I mean, Peter was the one that Jesus looked at and said, Peter, on your back, I'm building my church. Peter had traveled with Jesus. He'd shared bread with him. Heck, Peter had even walked on water at least a couple steps with Jesus. And again, remember, it was Peter that broke the silence and said, I am with you to the death. But that's not the Peter we see when Jesus is at his most vulnerable moment, when he's being interrogated. We don't see confident and bold Peter standing up with Christ while Jesus is being slapped. Peter's not in the room when Jesus receives his unjust sentence. Where's Peter? He's not there. He's distant. He's distanced himself 
He's by the fire trying to stay comfortable and warm. Peter's much like me. Peter's much like you when he's at his worst, distant, insecure, feel fearful, absorbed with ourselves. Peter may not have done what Jesus, Judas did, but when it mattered most, Peter was at his worst. A shriveling, spiraling little man. This was embarrassing. And it was damaging to the community that Jesus was raising up. Peter was the guy the other 11 were looking at. They knew Jesus had put his hand on his head and said, lead this group when I'm gone. They knew it. And now Peter's failed. And it would have been so, so easy for Peter to do what Judas did to himself. He could have taken the Woody Allen path and just finished it. But he didn't. Something in Peter said, I'm not taking that path. Something spoke hope into his life. Something kept Peter from taking Judas' faith. You could argue it was his strong character, personality, or his stubbornness, or his pride. Maybe those things were involved, but I would offer there was something else. Something more that intercepted Peter's path when he had come to the end of himself, when he realized, I cannot repair myself. Have you been there? I cannot fix this. And that something was mercy. It was mercy. Are you acquainted with mercy? While Peter was denying, spiraling, and falling, Jesus was standing faithfully before his accusers. When he was being accused of things that weren't true, Jesus stood quietly, knowing his father had his back. While Peter was sitting and warming himself, Jesus was being mocked in the confidence that his father had a different vision for his life than what was going on right here. And that he had a mission that he had been granted that he would fulfill. And then after the resurrection, you know what Jesus does? He goes and looks for Peter. Mercy. Peter, I just got a question for you. Do you love me? I'm not really sure. Is it back, back there by the fire? I wasn't feeling it, Peter. I'm a little confused. There was mercy for Peter from Jesus. Jesus becomes that leader. One of the people on whom the church is built. One of those stones. Do you find mercy when you come to the end of yourself? What, what narratives get written in your mind and heart 
when you know you can't repair, you can't fix. It's above your pay grade. You don't have the strength. You don't have the endurance. You don't have whatever it is, the stuff, to, to make your life be what you want it to be. Then what's left? I would suggest mercy's there. Mercy's about not getting what you deserve. Instead of getting condemnation, you get acquittal. You're free. Go in peace, friend. Step into this life that I have for you, right here and right now. Instead of contempt and rejection and distance, you get welcome. You can't give yourself mercy. You can only receive it. And it's available. Where would any of us be without mercy? Those of you who are acquainted with mercy, will you imagine your life for a moment without it? What if your life was defined and destined by your failures? By your missteps? Even by your innocent mistakes? That, that you did in your naivety or your youth or you got misled, whatever. What if your life was defined by that? What would your life look like? Maybe that is how you define your life. Maybe that's how you see your life. Maybe when things are going good around you, then you're okay. But as soon as circumstances change, here we go again. I'm not worthy Mercy says, yeah, I know. Step into the life Jesus came to give you. Some, like Woody, say our existence is meaningless. God's word says, no, it's not. God's word says, each of us. It says, you are beloved. It says, you are created with eternity in your heart. God's word also says, like Peter, you've distanced yourself from God in that eternity. Why? Because you want to call the shots of your life. You've abandoned. Your insecurities have moved you away from God. Your rebellion, you've chosen to radically follow your own ideas. Mercy says, hope is available. Life is there for the taking in Jesus because of the resurrection. It takes courage to admit we're broken, that we can't fix ourselves. It takes humility to receive it. It's an admission of guilt. It's an admission of frailty. Where's mercy in your life? Is it a traveling companion for you? Through Jesus, Peter goes on to write, in his great mercy, he's given us what? New birth. New birth. It's an odd phrase. I mean, all, aren't all births new? Why does he have to quantify and qualify it that way? Well, yes, all births are new, which is exactly the point. There's brilliance in the two words, new birth. Let's listen to our gospel writer, John, tell a little bit of the resurrection story of new birth. 
Brian read some of this earlier. Early on the first day of the week, it was still dark, and Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. Oh, well, we got a new character now. She saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so she ran. I, I love that phrase, so she ran. And she came to Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. You know, John, he's so humble. He never names himself in his whole gospel. Never will say, yeah, it was John. Well, wait just a minute on that. Hold that thought. Mary says, they've taken the master out of the tomb, she said. We don't know where they've taken him. So Peter and the other disciple, they take off. And what do they do, Daniel? They do what Daniel does, did for 20 miles yesterday. They ran. They ran together. But now listen to humble John. But the other disciple was faster. There's his one moment in his gospel to really shine. And he made it to the tomb first. He stooped down and saw the grave clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. But Peter did. The rock arrived and went straight to the tomb. He saw the grave clothes as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. Yeah, we know, John, you told us that. He also went inside. And then John tells us his whole purpose. He saw and he believed. There it is. Resurrection. New birth. Something dead coming to life. New birth. And now Peter's writing. He's writing out of this place of discovery of mercy in his own life. In his great mercy, he's given us what? New birth. New birth. He, he had to say it was new because he's talking about a second birth when something dead comes to life. John tells us in verse 10, which is not even on the slide, that when John and Peter discovered the empty tomb, you know what they do? They start running again. They want to go tell the others. They want to tell the other nine in that community that had got gathered what they're seeing. But one doesn't go back. Enter Mary. Mary doesn't go back. Mary stays at the tomb, at the empty tomb. She's different. Mary's always been different. If you're familiar with her story, Mary's got a hard past. So much brokenness, so much, so much she's been devalued in her life and used in her life. We don't get all the story of how Mary found hope, but we know she did. She's in this company of radical followers of Jesus. And somewhere along the line, I don't know if it was in a moment or if it was a progression, depends if you, know, you like the Chosen movie or not, exactly how did it happen. But 
Mary finds hope, and she finds life, and she's like staking everything on it. And now she comes to this empty tomb, and what does she say? They've taken my Lord. And so what do we find Mary doing? Well, well John and Peter are like running back. I don't know all their experience. We know John's believing. We don't know what's going on in Peter's mind and heart at this point, but, but man, adrenaline's going on. I, I guarantee that. Not Mary. I don't claim to know everything she's feeling, but I would say hope had been extracted from her. The one she had loaded up all of her hopes on now appears to have been vandalized even in his death. You remember Mary's there at the cross. She's the one of the few who courageously accompany Jesus to his final moment. And she's there because she wants to honor him and anoint him in his death. And he's gone. So John tells us, she stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb. What did she see? Two angels. In white, seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head. This is important language. We're going to see her here in a second. One at the head, one at the foot. So, Side note, but not really a side note. In the Old Testament days, the people of God had a special place before they ever had a temple. It was called tabernacle. It was, a, it was like a portable temple. It was like a tent. And wherever the, as God was leading the people in the wilderness, before they entered the promised land, the tabernacle would get moved with them because the tabernacle represented the dwelling of God, the presence of God in the community. In the center of the tabernacle, there's a really special place. They called it the Holy of Holies. It, it represented the manifest dwelling of God in them. They only went in that place. It was actually, they took it into the temple when the temple was built. The Holy of Holies, you went in, only one person, the high priest, and only one day a year. The Holy of Holies. In the middle of that little room, there was a box. They called it the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant, there were some like, the Ten Commandments were in there. The, the uh, second copy, you know, or the first copy, first copy Moses broke. They had to redo them. But that's another story. But they're in there. And some other artifacts that were reminders of what God had done in the people, with the people, were in that box. The box had a lid. The lid, they had a special name, just for the lid. They called it the mercy seat. It was the mercy seat. There were, there were two angels on the mercy seat. They made them out of gold. They were statues. Like, they looked like this. They looked like that. Now, Mary enters the empty tomb where the Son of God has been. And Jesus isn't there anymore. Instead, there's two angels. And they're, and they're not doing this. They're not frozen. They're not gold statues. But they're sitting in the mercy seat. And they're dressed in white. And I imagine they're smiling. You wonder what they said first. Good morning, Mary. Something like that. Or did they speak in Greek like George did? He is risen. Mary gets to see them. I love that. 
Mary's the one that gets to see this mercy seat. The resurrection of Jesus is why we get mercy. It's how we don't get the judgment we deserve. We deserve to be distanced by God. But Christ gave his life because we had made such a mess of ours. But resurrection had to happen. It wasn't a, oh, by the way, it wasn't a PS, an add-on. It had to happen. Because every one of us are sinners and our sin has separated us from God. God's word says the price for sin is death. And if Christ had only died and not resurrected, then death we still got a problem with. Hopelessness, extinction that accompanies it. The resurrection did happen. And these angels are announcing it to mercy, to Mary. And spiritual death is not the end of our story. Christ defeated it. We can try to cover our failures, our weaknesses, our missteps up. We can try to prove that we're worthy through accomplishment or brains or looks. We can try to compensate for our failures or wrongdoings. But resurrection lifted the sheet. And said, there's a different way. You don't have to choose Woody Allen's paths. I put eternity in your hearts. And I'm inviting you to life. I have defeated death. We're almost done. Peter writes, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth to a living hope. Let's end with hope this morning. Let's let John finish her story. The two angels asked Mary, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they took him. As he, she was talking, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was him. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who do you seek? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. And Jesus says to her, Mary. She turns and cries out, Rabbi. I mean, it's like there's like layer and layer and layer of surprise in this resurrection story. Mary turns around and she's, she sees Jesus. But she doesn't really see him. I don't know that there's that much mystery in that. Think of Mary again. Here's a woman who's been devalued her whole life. Probably when she's been approached by men, especially if it's just the two of them, they probably have something else in mind. So she's probably has an, a, a reflux, and especially right now, that when a man's approaching her alone, she's not making eye contact. She's thinking it must be the gardener. But Jesus has something else in mind than she thinks. He's pursuing her in a different way. Not because of what he thinks he can get from her, but what he wants to give her. Mary, he says. He calls her by name. 
That had to be a moment of confusion. He knows my name. And it gives her just enough courage to look up and make eye contact and look at his face. She knows who this is. Mary, man, I mean, don't miss Mary's story. This is a woman who's not only a former prostitute, this is a woman whom once Jesus cast out seven demons. I mean, to be that filled with evil spirits, I can promise you from experience, there's story behind these. There's history, there's abuse. There's brokenness that's taken place. There's layers upon layers. There's a hierarchy of evil spirits that are at play. And all that Mary had been delivered from. And I think when Jesus says Mary, that thing that had had died a few minutes ago, that hope, came to life. Mercy found Mary. Mary had been reborn. She had already found hope. But that hope had been taken for a moment. But in his great mercy, God has given us new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, Peter was the one who got to write those words. I think Mary could have written them too. She could certainly say, I think she could stand here and say in his great mercy, he's giving me new birth. And to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. She would say, I was there when new birth happened. I got to see it. I think she would say, I thought he was the gardener. I think she would chuckle as she told the story. She said, you know, God had put eternity in my heart. And I knew it was true. And that day, it got reborn in me. Friend, God has put eternity in your heart. Each of you. I don't know where you are with mercy. I don't know if you're acquainted with it or not. Is it a living reality for you? Because I don't think you can sustain hope in your life if it's not. Because if it hasn't yet, something's coming for you. It's going to threaten your hope. Something's not going to go great for you if it hasn't already. And there's going to be one way forward, and it's called mercy. Because you're not going to be able to fix it, repair it, overcome it. That's what God's Word tells us, that that's already true for you. (laughs) Your sin has already separated you and distanced you from God. Sometimes we just don't see it. If a resurrection hadn't happened... We wouldn't have a reason for hope. 
the death from our sin would be hanging on us. And we would have to conclude with Woody Allen. We can take hopeless, meaninglessness. We can take extinction and just end it. Hope offers something else. Hope is a second chance. But it's risky. When we really understand what it means to trust our lives to Jesus, it's supposed to feel risky. Because when it feels risky, then we, we know that God's addressing the eternity in our hearts that's been tainted, that's been broken, that's been twisted. And it takes courage and humility to say, yes, I will risk my life to follow you. I'm not just making a contractual agreement and getting a barcode for my arm. I'm saying I will follow you with my life. Knowing you will fail, you will, we do, we are, but mercy is our traveling companion. Have you ever met mercy? If you haven't for the first time, make it so. Make it so. I hope it will be today. By just saying, Lord, I believe what your word says about you is true, that you are the Son of God who came and walked among men lived your life on this earth, and then gave your life so that I might have life. And I'm going to trust that in my place, and I am going to follow that wherever it leads in my life. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for mercy. We couldn't do very well without it. We couldn't do anything without it with this eternity that you've placed in our heart and life. Meet us at that place of longing for hoping for more, for life. Even though life's hard around us, even though life may really not be very good right now, that it has questions and confusion and complexity, mercy can step in and say, I now give you a reason for hope that you can live in, not, not just tomorrow, but right here and right now. Faith will get you there. Give us mercy for this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.